Hey guys, it's time for Nina's Got Good News. Nina's a former TV news gal who used to share all the news. Now, as a mom and small businesswoman, she wants to share only the good stuff. It's time to brighten your day. So here's your host, Nina B. Clark. Hi, everyone. How are you? I am Nina Clark, dancing around the room here, your host of Nina's Got Good News. We are rolling, the mics are working, and we are all back here for a very, very special episode here. We are doing a two-part episode with the most incredible guest who's written the most incredible book. We are going to be talking today all about boys, and I'm so excited about this. I can't even tell you. If anyone follows me on Instagram, you know how much I am obsessed with this book and obsessed with our next guest. He actually could talk for hours and hours because he's just that good. But we are going to be doing this in a two-part special episode. If you have a son, if you have a grandson, if you are a boy or a man, if you are a teacher, a coach, a mentor, this episode is for you. My special guest today is a dad of boys, and now he's a grandfather of boys, too. His recently released book, How to Raise a Boy, is getting rave reviews, not just from me, but from everyone, literally. It is selling like crazy. He's even been on national television for his morning show debut on CBS News. I was so excited to see that, by the way. Author and psychologist Michael Reichart is joining me now from Philadelphia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Reichart, but I'm going to be calling you Michael today. How are you, Michael? Hi, Nina. Glad to be with you and with your, your listeners. Oh, Happy well, to be talking about this subject. Oh, well, I'm so excited because, as you know, I have a son. I have, Luckily for me, I have a boy and a girl, but I'm so excited. You've been helping me so much with raising Charlie. But tell us about yourself. What is your background exactly? Uh, well, you mentioned that uh, uh, I've been at this for a while, and I certainly feel that I have. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I began listening to boys, young men, when I was just out of college way back at age 23 years old, and I've been doing it steadily since in a whole variety of different uh, roles in the juvenile justice system and the public health uh, system. Uh, and, and certainly in schools and in clinical practices and psychiatric, even a psychiatric hospital. So I, I, uh, I've been doing it, and, and initially I don't know that I did it uh, deliberately. I think it was more being a young male myself. People wanted uh, to have boys have a chance to talk to a, another male. But it became something of a, a real interest of mine. Uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. I came from a family with five boys and one girl. Um, and uh, then I had two sons of my own, as you mentioned. I am a psychologist, and I uh, have a whole lovely mix of things that I do. I work at a boys' school as a supervising psychologist outside of Philadelphia. I have a clinical practice where I specialize and work with men, boys, and their families. Um, and I run a research center based at Penn, University of Pennsylvania, called the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives. And uh, uh, write books and articles and, and go around talking and training a lot. 
Well, we all need we all need you in our lives. So thank you for sharing all your words of wisdom and your gifts with all of us. But I first learned about you from my son Charlie's school here in Connecticut, Fairfield Country Day School, when you've come up to do talks at our school before. But what do you see as the value of an all-boys school? I know you, as you mentioned, you work at an all-boys school in Philadelphia, the Haverford School. But what do you see as the value of an all-boys school? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really the opportunity to focus in. I mean, it, it begins, I think, with the, with the notion that gender matters, that, that from the time that we conceive of a child and certainly from the time we first meet them, we project onto those uh, uh, infant children what we think it means that they're male or female, and we proceed to treat them differently based upon what we think uh, it means that they're male or female. So for a school to be able to dedicate itself to a fine-tuned understanding of how boys learn, how girls learn, what they need, um, how to relate to them, I think is a real luxury. And, uh, uh, you know, that does, I'm not saying that the uh, single gender form is necessarily going to be a better school than a co-ed context. I've, I've visited schools of all kinds, and it's certainly true that uh, a good school uh, is a school that doesn't blindly reproduce from one generation to the next assumptions about who children are and what they need. So a good boys' school is a school that not only dedicates itself to boys, but really uh, is committed to uh, checking its assumptions, making sure that there's evidence for the things that they believe and do, and being really open to the emerging science of boyhood studies. And, uh, you know, I, I, I come across lots of schools, including the one that you mentioned that, that your son goes to, that are really trying to do boys' education with uh, rigor. And uh, I really appreciate that. Well, I do too. I, I'm grateful every day for Fearful Country Day. So I'm so glad they introduced me to you. But let's talk a little bit about how we can improve when it comes to raising boys these days. How can we improve that? Uh, big question. Uh, I'll try to keep my answer short. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, sorry, we have 10 having, hours. We have 10 hours. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> having just written a 300-page book, I've got lots to say on the subject. But, but you know, in, in, in line maybe with the, uh, uh, you know, the title of your podcast, I would say that I have good news uh, for people that are caring for and raising sons. Um, and the good news is that the, the unthinking, blind, taken-for-granted way that we have tended to uh, uh, replicate a model of boyhood from one generation to the next, I think through much of human history, that's been disrupted by the, uh, the, the progress we've made toward gender equality and the women's movement. And what it means for those of us who are raising boys is that we have a chance, I think for the first time in history, to really uh, uh, understand who boys are developmentally and educationally and get it right. Um, I say that, that boyhood was not created uh, uh, for boys or with their needs in mind. 
And I think that in the last period of time, the last 10, 20 years, we've been able to, to look, take a hard look at the outcomes that boyhood has produced. Uh, you know, the, 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 the not great outcomes that boyhood has produced. And we've been able to say to ourselves, something's not right with the way we've designed our nurture of our son. We need to go back to square one, rethink what we're doing, and get it right. So that's the good news. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I think that uh, the, the, the rethinking begins with uh, uh, this new field, relatively new field of interpersonal neuroscience. And the notion that human beings, male or female, are wired to connect, mm-hmm. that we develop in relationships. You know, we, we know ourselves, we develop a self-concept, um, we develop a sense of what we can do, what we can aspire to. We, we develop all of that in the context of uh, seeing how others know us and um so, you know, I, I, one of the mantra that, that uh, I have been particularly struck by is uh, this one. Every boy known and loved, you know, and, and for a boy to be known for who he is, not, not for what role he will play in a scheme of things that uh, I think prior generations fitted boys to, but to really know our sons as the individuals they are with the particular needs and the particular personalities they have means we have to listen to them and we have to take them as they are and be and find a way to be delighted in them. Um, so much of parenting a boy has been about trying to fit the boy we have into a man box, um, trying to fit that boy into a set of traditional ideals or how we require him to perform masculinity. And we've done that at great damage to the, to the boy himself. And, and in particular, what, what, what fitting a boy into a man box has done has been to uh, uh, isolate him, to cut him off from his uh, sense of being known, connected, and loved. So I could go on, but, but I think, uh, you know, that's, that's my, maybe my bottom line, is that uh, the, the model of traditional boyhood that I think has reigned for generations has been disrupted, and it gives us a chance to go back to a more evidence-based, developmentally science-based perspective on uh, how human beings actually develop, how our sons develop, and what they need, and to uh, to, to bring that those insights into our our nurture, our, our educational practices, our coaching. You know, every everywhere boys are being cared for. Yes. Yeah, so, give us some real strategies because you talk so much about the power of connection. So, what are some real strategies for parents that are listening, moms or dads or coaches or teachers? How do we connect better with these boys? Yeah, so in the book, I I outlined three essential strategies. And uh, I can go in, if you like, to to some detail about each of them. Yeah. Um, So the first one, you know, so 
in furtherance of that goal, uh, every boy known and loved, um, the, the place to start begins with listening to the boy. We tend to spend time with our son uh, too often either correcting them, dominating them, or instructing them. And, you know, what the boy gets from those kinds of interactions is that he's a bit of an irritant and he needs to change himself. And what really matters to us about him is that he conforms to some preset uh, expectations we have. Uh, instead, what, I'm, what I recommend uh, is that parents develop the capacity to do deep listening, to give their sons the great gift of our attention. And parents who, who try to do that will find that at the beginning, you know, within two or three minutes of sitting down with the intention of listening to their son, their mind is going to become preoccupied with some stray thought or some feeling or some reaction to something that our sons are saying or doing. And we're going to find ourselves shifting the focus from listening to our son to somehow responding out of our own concern. And what we need to do is we need to build up that muscle of, uh, of, of, of uh, controlling our attention and keeping the focus on our son so that he has a sense that we really are interested in how his mind works, mm -hmm. what's of interest to him, and uh, not be put off, particularly by boys that, that, that are reticent at first or withdrawn or even rejecting and shut down. Mm -hmm. What I tell parents... How do you bring that, them back, though, if they're shut down? Because I think that's, yeah, part of, yeah. that's such a big problem for so many parents. With boys, yeah, and, and how do you bring them back? I'm gonna, yeah, the next strategy I want to okay. talk about is one way to do that. But but just in terms of listening, Anina, I think that that you know what I want parents to understand is that our our sons' brains, our sons' hearts, uh, lean in to attention like a a plant to light. They require attention to grow and develop uh, a robust. Uh, a sense of themselves. So I think that when we're sitting down and our sons seem uh, 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 inattentive or shut down or withdrawn, I, I tell parents, just hang in there. Mm -hmm. You know, read what he's saying with his body, with his eyes, with his hands. Um, stay present and stay delighted. Don't take his withdrawal personally. Uh, it might feel like a rejection or it might feel like, um, you know, sometimes parents even go further and feel uh, that their sons are essentially saying, you know, you're not the one I want. And they, they, they come to believe that that might be true. And, you know, a big part of my clinical practice is reassuring parents, you are exactly what your son longs for, whether they are, are able to tolerate being vulnerable and showing you that or not, you need to know it as the adult in the relationship. You are what we need. Mm -hmm. That's so a good reminder. Just yep. Just, just listen. Stay present. Stay connected to your heart and to your delight. And uh, don't let any stray feelings or reactions take over 
your effort to be present that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so, so important. That, that's one. And, you know, sometimes parents think that listening means asking questions, and the kind of questions that they wind up asking are questions that really convey to the boy that they're being required to satisfy their parents' curiosity um, or need to know. So and should we let them like, lead us in the conversation, you mean? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, for too many boys, I think life feels like uh, they're being harnessed to uh, a world that wants things from them, wants them to do well at school, wants them to do well at sports, wants them to be socially capable, wants them to win, wants them to please their parents. And that sense of being utilized trumps being delighted in and being welcomed. And what we want in that primary relationship with a parent or a caregiver is for the boy to feel anchored in uh, someone who simply uh, 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 cares about them. Mm-hmm. So okay. listening is, yep. is one way to do that, and it's a it's a way to break through a boy's isolation. You'd be amazed, Nina, at how many boys wind up in high school, and they reveal to me that there's a world of things that no one knows about them that they've never told anyone. I had one young man in this uh, emotional literacy program I do at uh, the boys' school you mentioned. Uh, He had lost his mother, and way prior to that had lost his father. Um, He was uh, 11th grade, and uh, in this emotional literacy program, I invited him to take a turn just talking about himself in front of the rest of the boys in the group. So he did, and what he revealed as he was talking was that his mom had, in fact, died a year ago. And then, he said, none of his classmates knew that. Wow. And he's, he's carrying this secret, this life-changing event in the, you know, that, that, that had shaped almost every day of his life since. Mm-hmm. But clearly he wanted to tell people. Well, he needed to tell yeah. people so that he, yeah. so he wouldn't be alone, but he didn't find a context in mm-hmm. which he could do that. And maybe a so, com- you know, and maybe a comfort. He was he felt comfortable. He felt comfortable mm-hmm. in that context because that's what we were doing. But yeah. you know, I'm I'm just always amazed at the extent to which uh, boys find few contexts like that, unless we parents or caregivers deliberately create a context for them. So you know that's the listening strategy and and uh, yep. I go in I go into great detail about it and how how fundamentally important it is often hard to do but a great skill to uh, to develop the uh, the next skill is related to that it's what what I call special time and just as you know oh yeah I loved this part of the book yeah special time yeah <laughs> tell us about special time because I'm really working on this oh good good. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's similar to listening. You just go and you plop yourself next to your son. The ideal uh, is that you have negotiated with him that for one hour a week or, you know, starting with 15 minutes, or, you know, today or tomorrow, something like that, you let him know that you'd like to just simply hang out with him uh, and, and 
that the, the time is not in any way something that he has to do to satisfy you. You just want to be with him mm-hmm. and and go to where he is uh, and fit yourself to what he's doing. Um, I used to tell my sons that this was the time in which I was willing to do whatever they wanted to. And sometimes it would be playing video games, which they knew I hated because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at them and I don't know what I'm doing and it feels really disorienting. And they loved that. They loved um, taking me into their world where they were, in fact, the experts um, for a change. And, and just you just try to hang in with them through whatever discomfort or disorientation or whatever you might feel. The point, the thing we're trying to convey to our sons is you're interesting to me. I want to know what you like or what's, a, what's important to you, and I'm going to stay with you. My other son used to like to shoot lacrosse balls into, into the net, and he could do it for a long, long time. And my job was to simply, you know, witness it, sometimes fetch the balls if they go off. Sometimes he'd want to throw the ball to me. Um, but, you know, he could do that a long time. And I think the thing that he was conveying to me was this was important to him, getting better at lacrosse, and that I would be with him while he worked on his stick work was important to him. Um, another, The other son, later on, as he got a bit older, uh, but not, not of legal age, used to want me to take the car out to a, a field near our house, empty field, and let him sit in my lap and drive the car. <laughs> That's great. Have, I can see. Have, I can see my kids wanting to do that <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and talk about feeling uncomfortable. You know, my hands kept wanting to go back on the wheel, and you know, control the um, situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was a great metaphor, really. I think for for the kinds of feelings that being in my son's world and letting him be letting him take the lead mm-hmm. and using my attention to essentially follow his lead, go where he wanted to go. Um, but the idea of special time is that if our sons know that they have that time coming and they can, they've really learned to depend upon it and to depend upon us to make the time about them and mm-hmm. what they want to do with it, what will happen invariably is that our sons will take that time take our attention to something that's of importance to them. We may not be able to tell that it's, you know, what's going on, but, you know, sometimes our sons will even uh, find a way to begin opening up about a struggle with a teacher or a girl or a friend or, you know, something else that's on their mind. And again, it's like that plant to light. They really uh, respond to attention by bringing us into their world uh, as they experience their world. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly where we want to be. Okay. So we first, we're, we get, we're on the listening. Then the second, we're on the special time. And what's the third? So, this is yeah. all of our homework, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I want everybody to practice. Um, so the third uh, has to do with the way that uh, for many boys, um, uh, there's not enough opportunity to practice coding feelings with language, actually expressing what they feel, getting, you know, working out the tension of, and, and stress of their lives. 
And consequently, they tend to act out their feelings rather than uh, uh, express them more directly. And when we see our sons going off course in some way, um, you know, the boy who becomes obstinate or oppositional, the boy who's mean to his sister, the boy who stops doing his homework at night and wants to watch TV or play video games, the boy who's off course, essentially, who's become un- uncooperative or withdrawn or fails to manage his responsibilities or, you know, act civilly in the ways that are expected in his family, that's the boy that, in a certain sense, is crying out for a limit. Now, the point of disciplining a boy, it's not to dominate him or force him into compliance. Uh, we often think of, of punishment uh, when what we're really trying to do is play a longer game than that. We're trying to develop our son's self-regulation. Um, and, you know, unless there's a pressing emergency and we have to step in and take control, think of me in the car out in the field, you know, my job in some ways was to let him develop the skill of steering his own vehicle, his own his own life. And, yeah, he might go off course. My goodness, I certainly go off course all the time as an adult, and I did as a boy. Um, what we want is for our sons to regulate themselves when they notice that they're not, they're not you know, living their lives the way that they would like to. Mm-hmm. And the way we do that is in a listen-limit-listen model for, for uh, setting limits or for intervening. The boy who's crying out for a limit because in some fashion or other his behavior or his attitude or his words, he's demonstrating that he's not really himself. That boy needs us to move in on him, essentially get in the way of whatever he's acting out, but not uh, to scold him or, as I said, dominate him but simply to say, to convey, essentially, you know, uh, Tommy, I'm not going to let you do that because that's not really uh, what we do in our family. We don't, we, don't, we don't get each other or we don't say mean things to each other or we do our homework, we handle our responsibilities, whatever it might be. And I think, I think something's going on with you and it's driving you off course. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to stop you here. And, and then the real payoff from that that, that limit setting follows in the third step where our sons are likely to uh, uh, express, sometimes uh, explosively, um, what that emotional energy is that's driving them off course. They're angry or they're scared or they, someone was mean to them during the day or they failed at something or they're frustrated or they're bored or they don't think they can do it, whatever it might be, that's really the pay dirt. That's, the, that's what you're trying to get to. That's the, that's the unprocessed, raw emotion that's driving them off course. And if they get a chance to work that through, they're in a position to pull themselves back into uh, uh, self-regulation. So, you know, it's another, it's another way in which a parent 
functions as the emotional container for their son. So whether it's listening or special time or limit setting, I think what we're really trying to do is we're trying to develop our son's skill set and in particular their ability to, uh, uh, to, to control themselves and to follow through on their responsibilities and their goals. And we want to thank our special guest, Dr. Michael Reichert, for joining us on this week's episode of Nina's Got Good News. Please stay tuned for next week's episode when we continue our special two-part series here with Michael Reichert. And we're going to be talking about the challenges of technology when it comes to raising our boys. So thank you all for listening. I'm so grateful for all of you. I know that I would never be here without all of you listening and supporting and inspiring me to be a kinder, better person every single day. Remember, you can find us now on iTunes and Spotify. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast too. And please, we are asking everyone now to share this episode with a friend. If you know someone who has a boy, a grandson, a son, they're a teacher, they're a coach, please be sure to share this episode with the, with a friend. Everyone needs to know about this incredible book by Michael Reichert. The mission of this podcast is to get better together as a community right here in the audio space. For now, I am your host, Nina Clark. Thank you again for listening, and let's keep being awesome. Awesome.